Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah, I'm feeling a little hoarse today. So uh, to all the listeners out there, apologies in advance. I tried to hydrate, but throat is not cooperating. You sound good, Alan. It's all right. <laughs> it's, it must be my nice mic and my foam padding around my microphone. Yes. <laughs> Over on Twitter the other day, Arizona Republic photographer Patrick Breen recounted trying to photograph a baseball tournament and being harassed at that tournament by parents who questioned what he was doing, accused him of being a pedophile. Um, He told them he was working for the AZ Republic, uh, showed him some press credentials, and ended up leaving the game because he was so upset as to what transpired. I was reading some of the responses on Twitter. Obviously, a lot of photojournalists are coming out in support of him. Uh, The thread otherwise is filled with uh, a bunch of trolls, uh, Mm. some bots, and, you know, for the real people that are responding, uh, some pretty disappointing thoughts about what the role of the press is and who's allowed to photograph public events out there. What was your reaction to some of the, the tweets? This was just all kinds of upsetting. I really felt for Patrick, you know, to be villainized just doing his job. And, you know, he's a photojournalist. This is probably one of the easier things that he's assigned to go photograph. That's usually, I would guess, pretty enjoyable. You know, it's a it's a little league baseball game. It should be fun. Um, And then he gets threatened that he's going to have his ass kicked by some upset parents I do understand parents wanting to question and protect their kids, absolutely. Um, But it just seems like it escalated in a really uh, not okay way, because specifically because they wouldn't identify which one was their child. But that that was when he's telling the story, he's like, they asked him not to photograph their kid. He turned to them, said, okay, no problem. You know, like, which kid is yours? And then they were like, we refuse to tell you which one of them is our kid. I'm paraphrasing here. I'm kind of like making up what they might have said, but he did say they refused to tell him. So it's just it's just upsetting. This paranoia over pedophilia in regards to like any photo of a child is really baffling to me. Um, mm. Clearly, you know, I've read some articles. Clearly, the internet and the dark web and encrypted communications has led to an in- increase of trading. Uh, sexual pictures of of children um, in a very troubling way. But to then cast the dispersion across everyone, even professional photojournalists who have identified themselves, who are shooting a public baseball game, seems like a crazy extrapolation of uh, a perception of the threat of pedophilia. It just, I mean, Mm. a a kid or an adult or like anyone playing baseball, like really? I just don't get it. Right. And obviously it is a very real problem um, out in the world, but this is a case where it is not. <laughs> not a problem. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Our hearts go out to Patrick, man. Keep keep doing the work. Keep keep reporting the news for your local community. We've talked a lot on the show about AI and facial recognition software um, that law enforcement is using or that Google is using or Amazon is using. Um, and the New York Times did a fantastic piece this past week. Uh, all about AI-created fake people. And they created their own software where they created all these faces and you're scrolling through them 
And you don't know that they're fake until you get to the end after you're like, oh, look at all those nice looking people that I just scrolled through. That was kind of fun. It's sort of the experience, the online experience of looking through it kind of reminded me of Michael Jackson's black or white video (laughs) where the faces are just morphing into different people. Um, It had a similar effect to that. But it turns out that these are all not real people. Uh, It's strange to think that you could literally create millions or billions of people who don't exist. And then, you know, one of the implications uh, of this software is that you'll be able to create not only a single portrait, but entire scenes that are completely created in the AI. There was a website, there is a website out there called thispersondoesnotexist.com that will generate fake faces that are photorealistic. You can't tell. Uh, Sometimes there are some visual clues Uh, Often the reflections in the eyes don't quite match. Often the earrings don't don't match one another. Often the types of glasses people are wearing, for whatever reason, they're wire-framed, thin frames. And it is the case that the programmers that are creating the AI don't understand the choices that the AI is making. So they're not, Mm. for example, sure why the wireframe glasses are so prevalent rather than chunkier glasses. So there's some like troubling things going on with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's very strange. You know, the one thing that the Times did that I hadn't seen in other websites is the the introduction of these sliders. So you as a reader of the article can go in and hit that aging slider or hit the, the gender slider and just see this face morph back and forth between an old face or a young face. It's cool and it's also really, really disturbing at the same time. They talk about that these uh, types of fake images have only recently become possible due to artificial intelligence called generative adversarial network. Um, And that in 2014, this was really bad tech. Like they compared it to The Sims. Um, And 2014 wasn't that long ago. And now these people look so real, you know? Well, and when you take one of these little faces and you put them into a Twitter profile photo, which is a very, very tiny little thumbnail, you're not going to be able to discern whether it's real or not. Mm-hmm. So in the past, bots have been using, you know, anime faces or whatnot, but now you'll be able to use these generated faces. And one of the things that's sort of curious is, you know, sometimes in the past, people would reverse image search for a Twitter profile pic and find that it came from a stock photo. But you can see a foreign government for example, starting to slowly seed these fake images all over the web so that when you do a reverse image search, you end up finding thousands of images of people, which makes it harder to discern whether it's a real person or not. Mm. Implications are really kind of frightening. Absolutely. And I think like one of the weirdest parts is that you can buy these for as little as two ninety nine. To create yeah. a, a bot, I was like, "Whoa, that is that is mad cheap." So you can create a Finsta, you know, with one of these people for very low price. So the AI is trained on a publicly available set of Flickr faces. So most of these facial recognition software, they they have to find a real data set of real humans. And Flickr is one of these sets because people upload the images and they say you can use it for whatever purposes. There's a seventy. 70- Wait, are you talking about? F- Flickr.com? Like yeah, Flickr.com. The, the photo exactly. site that we all used to use? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So researchers have 
assembled a data set of about 70,000 faces. That's one of the very popular data sets of facial images that's used for facial recognition, and in this case, used for training the AI. Um, so there are obviously limitations. I mean, 70,000 is a pretty big data set, but let's say they all skew, you know, 40-year-old white guys. You're going to have a, a bias towards those types of faces. And that may or may not explain some of the details with the frames of the eyeglasses. Um, it's just impossible to tell. So, you know, the AI is only as good as the data set. The AI is only as good as the programmers. Um, it's kind of, it's getting a little creepy with the AI right now. Getting creepy. I agree. Over on The Atlantic, editor Alan Taylor published a gallery of the top shots from the 2020 International Landscape Photographer of the Year. This is a pretty well-known contest. The judges uh, are, are top-notch. David Burnett, Peter Eastway, who does a lot with Phase One, Jim Goldstein, uh, who I've known personally for many, many years. Uh, the prize money is pretty good, $5,000 for the, the winning portfolio. Uh, they also have a $2,000 prize for the international photo uh, of the year. Um, so in terms of, you know, a, a contest that checks a number of boxes, um, this one, I would say, is a decent one. The one thing okay. I will say in reaction to the photos is that this particular contest has no limits on post-production. The only thing yeah, that they require obvious. is that the photo, that you start with a photo, and then you can composite the hell out of the image. You can HDR, you can clone, you can stitch, you can focus stack. And so mm -hmm. many of the images, to my eye, end up look, looking quite fake quite yeah. like a little too computer graphic generated. Alan Taylor's yep. edit over on the Atlantic is probably the most realistic looking of the bunch. But when you look at the book that they have on the International Landscape Photographer website, they're like really <laughs> computer generated looking. Yeah. Some of them even just look like, like strobes were used out in the landscape, which I find fascinating. <laughs> there was more than 3,800 entries. So they yeah. really narrowed it down to a, a really beautiful selection. But I got to say, some of them just looked like Mac OS desktop background pictures <laughs> exactly. to me. <laughs> but not, not all of them. The FAQ says uh, in, in regards to the post-production work, um, the entrant must be the only person that does the post-production work. And they say, quote, we consider this part of the art of landscape photography. So it's interesting to see that this pretty well-known, well-regarded contest believes that photo manipulation is an integral part of landscape photography, this niche of <laughs> landscape photography. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't have a, a dog in the race here. Um, and so it is what it is. It just, uh, you know, it goes back to this AI thing. If, if you're willing to accept that, that fake, quote, fake stuff, composited stuff, is an accurate way or is an artistic way to depict the uh, landscape, I think it raises some questions about the way that we perceive reality. I guess that would be my only caution flag. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorites um, that was featured in the Atlantic is David Swindler's photo taken in Southern Arizona. And there's a rainbow and a lightning bolt going through the sky. It is gorgeous. But now I'm like, did that happen at the same time? I don't even know. You wouldn't even know. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, they are not allowed to caption the images. 
They are not allowed to put any identifying marks in it. So yeah, you just, you have no idea how they assembled uh, the image together. Food for thought, food for thought. For sure. It is getting to be the close to the end of the year and Reuters is one of the first uh, large uh, media outlets to publish their pictures of the year 2020, even though we have a little bit over a month left. Uh, there are 100 images in this gallery and I went through uh, all 100 of them. And my first reaction was, there are a lot of photos of wrapped bodies as a result of COVID. Mm. Mm. Uh, a little, I mean, a sign of the time, certainly. Uh, a little disturbing as well. Yeah. Um, didn't know what to make of it. What did you think of the, the set of images? Oh, man. I mean, there's just so much heartbreak. I mean, and, and that's, I mean, that's every year, right, of these, like, photojournalist, you know, roundups. For the end of the year, you're just like, wow, a lot of really terrible things happened uh, this year. But there, but usually there's a few more bright spots. And this year, there's really very, very few bright spots um, within the 100 picture slideshow that they have so far put together. I, I anticipate they'll probably add more by the end of the year. But um, there were a few images uh, and incidents that we talked about on the show. I know all year we've kind of been wondering what are going to be those moments that represent 2020 since this is such a historic year. Um, and for example, th this is kind of random, but Umet Bekta's drone shot of the decommissioned cruise ships. Yep. You had brought that up earlier, I believe this fall. Um, it's a great shot. Uh, also, the couple down in St. Louis, the McCloskeys, which we talked about last week, um, who uh, were on their property aiming guns at peaceful protesters. Um, the the shots taken by the Reuter photographer, which we, we didn't talk about. We talked about Greenblatt's photos. But the Reuter pictures are just they're more terrifying than green ones. <laughs> like just the expression. Um, I don't want to get too much into it, but they, they're, they're strong. They're very, very strong images. Um, we also talked about uh, Allison McLaren's shot of the nurse who's wearing, he's in full PPE and he's standing in front of cars um, in Denver that were protesting to reopen businesses um, when everything was shut down early, earlier this year. Um, and then, you know, just empty street shots of Manhattan. Um, so, I mean, I was happy to see these really sort of iconic moments um, throughout the year be, you know, get their hat tipped in the slideshow. Uh, photographer Jose Cabezas has a photo of gang members in a jail in El Salvador. They are crowded like crazy, as you can expect from some of these Central American uh, prisons. And they're all masked and they're all tatted up mm. uh, with gang affiliations. And to me, that was such a representative photo of, you know, crowded jails, the risk of COVID spread, these guys wearing the masks. Mm. Uh, it's just an insane scene. The one thing that I was thinking when I was going through these photos is, you know, Publishers make choices about what quality of image they're going to put up on the web because the higher the quality of the image, the larger the image, the less JPEG compression that you're using, the larger the file that you have. So the more bandwidth that you're consuming just to serve it up to people. And these pictures of the year galleries tend to be very, very popular. And when I'm looking at these images compared to when I originally saw some of them, 
they're really degraded in quality. And to me, mm. it doesn't do justice to these images. The, the, the overall effect, even though I know they're well-composed and well-exposed, they look crappy to me. I don't know mm. if you had that same reaction, but, but you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult choice to be in the photo or video publishing game on the internet because you're making these bandwidth choices, quality choices that you're trying to balance um, to do totally. justice to the images. And I just didn't think that this gallery did justice to the images. I mean, a lot of, for me personally, a lot of the images didn't even load, which was disappointing because I was like, where are they? I would like to see them. <laughs> <laughs> so even, I mean, even just having, you know, a proper way to display and your photos, um, super important. Super important. And, you know, it's something with Photo Shelter that we struggled with a lot over the years of like, how big a file do you want to, you know, you're, it's not only how big a file, but the bigger the file, the, the, the slower it's going to load as well. So you're trying sure. to balance performance, quality, your bandwidth bill. Uh, there are just a lot of choices to make in serving up this, this content. One other image that I wanted to point out, um, you know, of course, we live in the U.S., so our, our worldview tends to be very U.S.-centric. A lot of people don't know about the major protests that were going on in Thailand uh, against the royal family and the government there. Jorge Silva has an image from November 18th of a protester uh, you know, he, the protesters in uh, T-shirt and jeans, and he's pushing against these riot shields um, with a mass of police, and it's the oh, only man, body that, there. And it's, it's just such a yeah, it's unbelievable, an unbelievable photo. And with all of the the George Floyd protests going on in the U.S. Uh, this summer, it's sort of hard to remember that protests go on all over the world and. Uh, like, this is an amazing photo out of that set of protests in, in Bangkok. Alan, last week we had talked about photographer Diana Marcosian, who had cast actors to play her family to reenact um, both stills and uh, an entire film about her childhood. And I found another photographer this week who has done a similar thing, um, except for she cast Laura Dern as her mom. Oh, <laughs> and no big I'm deal. A big, no big deal, right? I am a big Laura Dern fan. Um, I think my first film that I saw her in was uh, David Lynch's Wild at Heart, which is just pure David Lynch, weird, <laughs> beautiful. Uh, I loved it. Um, but more recently, like her in Big Little Eyes, like I just, have you watched that? I have not. Oh man, it's just so good. And then her in The Marriage Story is just also phenomenal. I could just like do a whole thing about Laura Dern. But, um, but this photographer who cast her, uh, her name is Jonah Frank. And she has a new memoir called Cherry Hill, A Childhood Reimagined. Um, and it's about her relationship um, with her mom growing up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey in the 1970s. Um, and basically, the book is a portrait of her as a young woman coping with her mother's struggles with depression um, and also her brother's descent into schizophrenia. The work looks really stunning, and Jonah's work is great. Shot on 4 by 5 so large format. Her husband is a cinematographer in Hollywood and suggested that she use an anamorphic lens. Um, so for you film buffs out there, J.J. Uh, Abrams loves to use anamorphic lenses. So it gives this really kind of spread out look. It does a lot with the flare characteristics of, 
of the light hitting the glass. Um, it it it's a it's a interesting uh, way to go about telling a memoir. Uh, there's a New York Times article uh, about the book as well that talks about the graphic novel as a means to to for people to tell their memoirs. So they bring up uh, Mouse and they bring up Persepolis and they bring up uh, Fun Home. Um, those are all illustrated graphic novels that have a memoir component. This is a photographic version of this. Jonah's work is beautiful. Uh, she's a very, very talented photographer. I love large format. When I look mm -hmm. at her work in general, there's something very disquieting about her work. And I compare it to other portraitists out there. And, and clearly she has like this specific point of view, but it's like, everything looks like a little bit too clean and manufactured for me. And mm. I know in this situation, she is doing a stage narrative. So that there is that sort of Gregory Crudson, you know, one frame movie look to it. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about his work as well. But I find that even with some of her earlier work, there's sort of like a, a children of the corn kind of like weird weirdness to the, to the vibe <laughs> that isn't quite my cup of tea. That isn't, I, again, very, very skilled photographer. The work looks amazing. Not exactly my cup of tea. I'm, I, I have to love it because Laura Dern's involved. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I have been to Cherry Hill, New Jersey before. She created a, a, a set of her home in California. Which led me oh. to believe once again, and we talked about Diana Marcosian last week, but how, what is funding all of these like set creation <laughs> and costume <laughs> creation? I know. Very good question. I mean, in this case, I think we know like this, like this was probably self-funded. Yeah. And you know what? That, that's fine. Yeah. It's just, uh, it, it's, it's it such a weird precedent, <laughs> you know? That, I know. Like, oh, now we I all know. have to like recreate our childhood and you know, hire <laughs> actors to play us. Well, I, I do think it's interesting that two women have very recently kind of gone this route. And I, I think that's a very instinctual, I don't know, feminine, you know, look at like, what, what has my life been? I'd be interested to see a male perspective kind of done in this same vein of like hiring actors, setting up the sets, all that just to, just to get some variation. A fascinating trend. We'll have to see uh, whether it plays out more in 2021 and if, if more people get in on the, uh, on the trend there. Lastly, as the end of the year approaches, of course, you're going to see a lot of holiday gift guides coming out. And Aperture Books is no exception. They put together their annual list with 27 must-have Aperture Books for everyone on your holiday gift list. I'll be honest, I have stopped collecting photo books because I have a whole stack of them, um, many of which are rarely opened, if ever. Uh, but I am intrigued by a number of titles on the list, uh, starting with Danny Lyon, The Destruction of Lower Manhattan, work that he did in the late 60s. Uh, we've talked a lot about Antoine Sargent, the editor, and he has his book, The New Black Vanguard, uh, Photography Between Art and Fashion. And Alex Webb and Rebecca Norris Webb have uh, their take on Brooklyn, Brooklyn, the City Within, all three of those books I'd, I'd gladly add to my stack of books, <laughs> photo books. I would love to get uh, Joel Meyerowitz's Provincetown. 
Um, I just love his work. It's just so dreamy and amazing, and I absolutely love it. Um, I also highly recommend Nan Golden's The Ballad of Sexual Dependency. Um, I mean, I was obsessed with that book in college. I just thought it was so amazing how an artist could just look to her own friends to create an entire, not career, but basically artistic life. Um, and then I would love to get the new Black Vanguard. There's there's yeah. one book on this list that I'm going to tell our readers that they should just skip. <laughs> and that oh. is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the Photographer's Playbook, 307 Assignments and Ideas. Um, I've owned that book for, I, I think, like four years. And I open it from time to time. I've read through most of it. I'm never inspired by it. The idea of it is that it's a bunch of photographers giving you a prompt of what you should go shoot. And I'm just, I'm just always not, I'm like, that was kind of lame. Like that idea, like whatever I read. Um, yeah. So don't, don't get that one. You got to find your own inspiration. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I was just talking to my sister on the phone and I was like, hey, what do you want for Christmas? She's like, I don't know. She's like, what do you want for Christmas? I don't know. And we came to the conclusion that particularly in the time of COVID, what the hell does anybody need? I know. We're not going anywhere. We don't have any, you know, we don't need clothing. Right. We have our Net- Netflix subscription already. <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, consumerism is out for the year, at least for me. I know. Honestly, I think the thing that you could get that's great is like candles to make your home smell good. (laughs) And like, that's kind of the only thing. (laughs) You know, at the beginning of the year, I made a resolution not to buy any photographic equipment. And with the exception of, uh, I think, a few batteries and maybe a few cards, I haven't really bought anything. And what? And ironically, I've because I've been in quarantine or, you know, there's not much to do. I, I have actually shot just a lot of photos this year, more, more than usual, because uh, I'll just go out to the beach and shoot surfers or whatever. Uh, so yeah. without buying any more, I've been a more active photographer than ever. Wait, and didn't you accidentally leave some of your equipment um, back in New York because you had gone out to Hawaii not knowing that you were going to have to stay? Yeah. So most of my gear is still in New York, although I did have a friend ship out a, a few lenses, but to be honest, I don't okay, really use them. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, I mean, that, see, that's even more impressive. Like you didn't even have your gear and you didn't buy more. Yeah. I, I have been tempted. There's some stuff that would be nice to have, but then I think, you know, if I spent a few thousand dollars, like on a new camera, would I actually use it? And the answer is probably not. So there you why go. not save yeah. the money for a trip? when we can all travel again. Yes, I agree. All of the stories that we talked about today, you can find the links to those stories from their original sources on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. We'd also highly recommend that you smash that subscribe button. Leave us a review or a comment by tweeting at us at Photoshelter. Hey, Sarah, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Alan. Photoshelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.